Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zielinski. Right, this morning we're going to be reading one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, beginning the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for probably... about four months or so. Um, We'll probably make our way through it and get done by the end of summer going through the Sermon on the Mount. But if you guys would stand, please, as we read God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Now, you know, we don't do things like this very often, but I've got a little bit of a a media clip here to help us as we get started on this journey regarding the Beatitudes. Why are you doing that? Making sure nobody's following us. That would be inconceivable. Despite what you think, you will be caught. And when you are, the prince will see you all hanged. You're sure nobody's follow us? As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. No one in Gilder knows what we've done. And no one in Florin could have gotten here so fast. He's climbing the rope. And he's gaining on us. Inconceivable. I thought I was going faster. You got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means. If you've seen the movie before, you know that guy says inconceivable about 50,000 times. But he said, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You've probably heard the Beatitudes 50,000 times. And I don't think they mean what you think they mean. And this, for me, to be honest, was one of the most challenging passages for me to fully wrap my mind around 
as, as I really dug in and began to see what Jesus was actually saying, which I don't think is, uh, is probably what you've heard that he thought uh, people think he was saying. In fact, this passage of scripture, one commentator says there are at least 36 distinct interpretations of what is going on in these blesseds that Jesus says. That's a lot. 36 distinct takes on what is happening in the Beatitudes. You know, sometimes when you go to build something, we've talked a lot about building lately. Um, Sometimes you come up on a nice field, a nice lot that you have, and you can just build the foundation and put up the structure you want. But what do you do if there's something that's already there in the way? Sometimes you have to do some demolition. Sometimes you've got to clear something away before you can construct what you want to on it. And so as we deal with this, I think it's most helpful to begin by stating what Jesus is not saying in the Beatitudes. At least two of the biggest takes on them we're going to have to address and and say what Jesus is not saying this and this is why he's not saying that. And some of it is going to get a little more clear. And I know for me, as, as I was getting into this, uh, my, my change of perspective on the Beatitudes began about three years ago. And, and it's just one of those things that the first time I heard this take, I thought, that, that kind of makes sense. But I don't know if I buy it. But the more I thought, that really makes sense. But there's that. And, and it, I'm serious, it's taken me two and a half to three years to flip on this. But here's some preliminary thoughts on all of the Beatitudes, all of the blesseds, um, before, we, before we look at it. First of all, the word blessed means, essentially, who is well off? Who has a good life? Whose life looks like God is smiling on them? When you look at them and you say, well, clearly, they are blessed. They are well off. They're doing well. They're in an enviable situation in life. Okay? That's what the term blessed means. The way, the way Jesus is using it, and, and these aren't the only uh, things that we would call them beatitudes. There were, those were common among Jewish writings. There's some you see in the Old Testament. It was also common in Greek. They were present. This isn't exclusive to, uh, to Jesus or to Christianity. But it means, you know, you would look at somebody who is, you know, very wealthy and has everything they need and would say clearly they're pretty well off when you look at things. That's what it means. However we treat one of the Beatitudes, we have to treat them all. We can't say, well, in this beatitude, Jesus is saying that this is a good condition that we should strive for. And in this one, he says, well, that's not a great position, but it's going to be remedied in it. We, however we take one, we have to take them all. And you can see the way Jesus words them. All of them are in the exact same structure. Blessed are the blank, for they shall blank. Okay, there, there's a very consistent uniform structure, meaning you, however you take one, you're taking them all the same. And there's even a, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. There, there's some other things structure-wise that are significant that we'll look at, but we've got to take them all the same. And whenever you read them and you see, you begin to grasp what Jesus is saying, it should be quite shocking, okay? It should be something that you're thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't even make any sense when you first hear it. Because that's how Jesus was. 
See, everything about the kingdom is, is kind of turning the world upside down and on its head, right? Because Jesus says weird things that nobody thinks make sense, right? I mean, first of all, you remember his call when he first came and he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. What does the word repent mean? Turn, change. And what are you primarily changing in repentance? Your mind, your thinking. When he said repent for the kingdom is at hand, he's saying change the way you think about the kingdom because it's not what you thought it was. The kingdom is here now with him. It's, it's not the kingdom they were expecting. They were expecting militant, uh, come in, overthrow the Romans, set up a literal throne, all that stuff. Jesus says, no, change your thinking about the kingdom. It's different. And then he says things like the first will be last and the last will be first. And you think, Jesus, that doesn't even make sense. If they're first, clearly they're first. They can't be last if they're first. And the people that are last can't be first. They're last. Jesus says crazy things like, if you really want to find your life and hang on to it, you have to lose it. And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. And you're thinking, Jesus, that doesn't even make sense. Jesus says things like, if you really want to live, what do you have to do? You have to die. Does Jesus not understand the way the world works? <laughs> These are the kinds of things that Jesus says. When he tells them what, what it's like, the, the significance of marriage, the disciples look at him and say, it's better to not be married then. And Jesus said, bingo. Now you're getting it. He said all kinds of things that they just did not know what to do with Jesus. And so however we take these beatitudes, if the first time you hear it, you're thinking, yeah, that fits right in with the way I normally think of life, you're probably on the wrong track. This is not an exhaustive list, and it does not guarantee nor exclude anyone from the kingdom. Okay, whatever it means to mourn, he's not saying everyone who mourns is automatically in the kingdom or that whoever's not doing this is automatically out of the kingdom. Because we can think of people who match all of these descriptions that are, are still lost and rejecting Jesus. And we know people who have embraced Jesus who maybe don't match any of these criteria. Okay, so we can't think of them in that way. No one listed here is blessed because of their condition, and none of these conditions are called blessed, okay? He doesn't say blessed are the mourn because they're mourning. He doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. He doesn't say mourning is blessed. He said blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that, that's a distinction. We, we don't want to make Jesus say things that he wasn't saying. Okay, he didn't say um, mourning is a blessed condition. He didn't say that those who mourn are blessed because they mourn. It's because the thing that will change. All those things settle in? All right, good. We're clear as mud. What this is not and this is, this is probably going to be the, the most difficult pill to swallow this morning. This is not a to-be list, a to-do list, or a you-should-become list. 
That's not what this is. And that's how we take it most often. But when we look at the context and we look at the things that flow, that'll be clear. And I know, trust me, I know. Because I've been there with it. And I get done and my first thought is, yeah, but as long as we become more like those things, we're all right. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Think about it this way. If all Jesus is doing is, in one sense, setting aside the law about physical commands for things for us to do or not do and replacing it with a heart condition that we need to become, which is more difficult? The heart conditions, right? Because the Pharisees, they did all the law thing. And Jesus said, our righteousness has to be greater than theirs because they've got all that part down. And yet, whoever's in the kingdom is greater than the Pharisees. And so if Jesus rebuked them for tying up heavy burdens on men's backs to keep all these hard physical things, is Jesus going to give us a harder, heavier burden and say, you have to strive to be perfectly pure in heart if you want to see the kingdom? That doesn't make sense. Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. So whatever he's doing, he's not giving us an even more difficult list of things that we have to become in order to make it in the kingdom. And that produces tremendous discouragement on people when they read these things and they think, oh, I have to become meek. I have to be perfectly pure in heart. I have to be persecuted because what if you never get persecuted actually? Um, Does that mean the kingdom is not yours? If this was a to be or a to do or a you have to become list, that would be the case. And if you look at it, if you compare it to Luke, in Luke chapter 6, he gives a similar teaching of Jesus, but that time it's a little different. There are these blesseds, but then there are also woes that correspond to them. You know, he says, blessed are the poor, and he doesn't say poor in spirit, he just says the poor. So we, we're absolutely thinking in materialistic terms. Luke says, blessed are the poor. But then he says, woe to you who are rich. He says, woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who are well-fed. So are we really to say that we can never be well-fed, we can never have material possessions, we can never laugh? No. If you press it that way, it doesn't work. Especially once you see what some of these things are really really about. And they're not all desirable conditions. Okay. To be in a state of mourning, he's not talking about just mourning over your sin and being repentant in your heart. There's a, a similar place in Isaiah that picks up a similar thing about those who mourn will be comforted. And the word mean, it means afflicted. It means you're in a wretched, miserable situation. Your life is mournful. It's pitiable. You think about a parent who is standing at a funeral of their child. That's mourning. Jesus is not calling us to be that. Okay, you think of somebody, and I know there there are a lot of people in, in the housing industry that lost everything when the market collapsed back in 2008, 2009. It was disastrous. Your life was wretched if that was you. Nobody looks at you and says, you know, that's a better condition to be in. We should strive to be like that. <laughs> you, you don't want to be that way. Jesus is not saying this is what you should be. That's not what he's doing. And nor are all of them undesirable. 
Those who show mercy, that's a great thing. It's a great thing to show mercy, to be the merciful. That's a wonderful thing. So, but, but that doesn't mean just because being merciful is a wonderful thing doesn't mean Jesus is telling us to be merciful here. Okay, some things can be true, but not be being taught from a certain passage. Secondly, this is not a, these are blessings when you die and get to heaven list. Okay, it, it's not about, well, yeah, these are things we should be. And when we get to heaven, all of the, you'll be comforted and you'll be well-fed and all that stuff come along. No, because Jesus didn't come and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is not here yet. He didn't say repent for the kingdom of heaven is still coming. No, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The word actually means come near. And that's why they translated it at hand. And there are a couple other ways Matthew uses it to make the point. In one of Jesus's parables, he says the owner of a vineyard, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent people to go get the fruit. Well, you send them to get the fruit when the fruit's there. And that's what it meant that the season had come near. When Jesus is praying with them in the garden, he wakes them up because they were sleeping, not praying when they should have been because their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. He said, rise, the hour is at hand, has come near. He didn't mean it's going to be here in a while. No, he meant now. And then he said, look, my betrayer is at hand. And he didn't say that because Judas wasn't there yet. He said it because Judas was, in fact, there to betray him. So when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we should think of the kingdom and its benefits as, at a minimum, beginning with Jesus. Okay, granted, there are certain things that are future only, but those are only certain aspects of it. The kingdom begins now. If you look at the Beatitudes themselves in the first one and the eighth, because there are eight set out in perfect parallel structure, the ninth one is different, but that's really just an elaboration on the eighth. But the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of those present tense, theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Everyone in between those, two through seven, are all future tense. They shall, but we should think of that more as a certainty than a time thing. He's not saying they shall as in in the future, but he's saying they shall and you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. So don't think of this as uh, a to-be list or something we have to strive to become. Don't take this as if we live with Jesus and we've confessed our sin that one day I'll die and experience these things. So how are we supposed to understand them and why? Now we're getting into some real, real stuff here. When we look at the context, okay, what is the context leading up to this? Matthew began in chapter one with what? What was the first thing? The genealogy. And what was the whole point of the genealogy? To prove that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, that he is in fact a descendant of David and a rightful claim to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. This thing starts out from beginning to end. It's the story of a king and his kingdom. 
And then we see Jesus uh, contrasted really with Herod, the king, but yet there's a new king born that people come from all over to worship him. The bookends here of verses one and eight show that it's about the kingdom and who the kingdom belongs to. Jesus, well, first of all, John showed up and what was John preaching in the wilderness? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus shows up and what does he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later, Jesus is gonna send the 12 out and you know what he's gonna tell them to say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the first one and the last one, and anytime in, in literary stuff, and especially in scripture, when you see those kind of bookends where he starts something one way and ends it exactly the same way, word for word, you know that that's drawing a theme of unity around these things. And what does this one say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes have something to do with whose is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom of the heavens belong to? That's what this is about. See, in first century Judaism, and really not just in first century Judaism, but but in all of antiquity, when you would think, if you would have went to anyone and asked them, who would you say is blessed? Who's well off? Who's living the good life? And some people even put, if you, if you think of um, people who deal in, in philosophy with ethics and things, they, they always start with dealing with what is the good life and what does it mean to be a good person? Okay, and Jesus is really doing that in the Sermon on the Mount. He be, the Beatitudes teach us about the good life. What is the good life? And then he, he deals with what does it mean to be a good person and how do we be good? How do we live good in, in God's eyes? But listen to this they would never have looked at somebody following the funeral buyer and said, they're blessed. They gotta be. Look at them. Isn't that just a great situation of life that they're in? Nobody would say that. And Jesus wasn't saying that either. Nobody would say that about the persecuted. You know, scripture teaches us that that if we follow Jesus and we live a godly life, we will face persecution. That's just a part of it. Because they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to his followers. We're also told to rejoice when we suffer. And I think as Americans, we by and large have a terrible theology of suffering, a very unbiblical perspective on on suffering and, and pain and persecution. We need to grow in that. But we are never told in Scripture that we should want to suffer, that we should long to be persecuted, that we should just want to be stoned for Jesus. Like that, that's not it. Paul said he wanted to know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, but not at all meaning like persecution is just the most desirable thing and we should seek for it. We're never told, go find somebody to beat you for Jesus. (laughs) We're not. But when people take the Beatitudes as a to-do list, That's what they're really saying. You should strive to be persecuted. But nobody looks at the persecuted and somebody who is laying there beaten and bloody and maybe just had their children tortured in front of them and says, yeah, they're pretty well off. I'd swap places with them. So when Jesus shows up and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, people are thinking 
what are you saying? They are anything but blessed. But what he's saying is, you remember what the word gospel means? Good news. And what is the good news about? Starts with a K. Kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. That's what he's been talking about. And in fact, we see it here in verse 23 of chapter 4, right leading into this. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And so Matthew Matthew says he shows up proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he starts, Jesus opens his mouth and teaches them. And you know what he's teaching them? I got some great news. The kingdom is for everybody. Even all the people that you thought would never be able to make it in the kingdom, the kingdom is for them too. That's what this is. This is an announcement that the kingdom is for all people. And maybe especially for all of the people that nobody thought it was really for. So who are these blessed and why? I want to start because maybe this will help help get our minds right, because we, we have to think of each of these conditions as something that people would probably look at in a negative light and say things are not really going well for them. And so to kind of contemporize this, I've come up with a list um, that I'm by no means saying this is scripture, so please don't misunderstand that. I'm just saying if we put this in contemporary terms, this would be a similarly befuddling list of people who Jesus would say are blessed and why. Blessed are the depressed, for they will be filled with joy. Blessed are the insecure, for they will be certain of themselves. Blessed are the anxious, for they will be at peace. Blessed are the illiterate, for they will read the very word of God. Blessed are the uneducated, for they will learn from the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the weary, for they will receive rest. Blessed are the lonely, for they will never be alone. Blessed are the homeless, for they will live in the Father's house. Blessed are the physically handicapped, for they will know no limits. Blessed are the mentally challenged, for they will be treated with dignity and respect. Blessed are you, whatever your inadequacy may be, for Jesus is sufficient for you too. Does that make sense? But now what we have to do is we have to have that same understanding when we come to the Beatitudes that Jesus gave. We would never take a list like that and say, well, you know, ultimately being depressed is better than not being depressed because they're blessed. So we should try to be depressed. But yet we see Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we somehow make being poor in spirit a meritorious condition that earns us the kingdom. That makes no sense of it. Makes no sense of it at all. 
In fact, we're going to start there and look at that. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, what does it mean to be poor? It means you don't have anything. And, and there, there are two different words, at least two, that, that are used in Greek for poor. One of them means you don't, you don't have any, any significant means. And one of them means you don't have any means at all. In fact, if you look in the, in the lexicon, in the dictionary, the one word means you don't really have any much, but you're not reduced to begging. You know, you're poor, you don't have much, but you're scraping by. The word that Jesus uses here means you're destitute. This is abject poverty. You're resorted to begging. And people say, well, they try to spiritualize and say, well, we need to come to Jesus as beggars who have nothing spiritually. That's not what he's saying. No no matter how true that is, that's not what Jesus is saying. And you can compare that with what Luke said, where he just said, blessed are the poor. And again, that's those who are in abject poverty. They can only get anything by begging. Jesus is in no way saying we need to put ourselves in a position of being beggars. And nobody in church history, well, a few in church history actually have. People have gone and and they sold everything and went and lived in monasteries as monks. But you know what? They didn't have to beg because they all had their little community that provided. They, They did not actually put themselves in the situation that this would be describing about material things, nor spiritually. In fact, the spiritually poor are those who have no spiritual resources to speak of. You look at the Pharisees and you would say they've got all the spiritual stuff going for them. They were educated in the law. They have access to the temple. They have every kind of thing you can think of. Jesus is saying, think about the person that you would never ask to pray at a family meal. They are the last person you would call to come to the hospital and pray for somebody. Somebody you would never imagine like them coming to church. You think there's no way they're, they're never picking up anything scripture's laying down. They just have no spiritual uh, anything about them whatsoever. Jesus says, yeah, those people, the kingdom is for them too. It's not just for all the super spiritual religious people. It's for those who have nothing going for them spiritually also. Those who mourn, we touched on that. He's not just talking about mourning over your sin. He's saying your life is a wretched situation. It's mournful. Who would want that? Nobody would want that. It's not a good thing. Those who are meek, and here we go, oh, well, there's the meek, they're humble. If he wanted to say humble, he would have. Meek has more to do with maybe a, a timidness, a reservedness, a shyness, somebody who's not assertive. Right, we think of things like you need to seize the day. If you want it, you better reach out and grab it. The meek would never do that. They're too meek. They're always going to defer to somebody else. They're never going to reach out and grab what is theirs. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, that's not just a longing to be right, though it may be that, that may be a part of it, but they want to see rightness be. They want to see justice done. People who look at our culture and all of the injustice in our culture and in the world and say, God, how can this be? When are you going to make things right? And maybe it's in themselves too. Maybe they're saying, Lord, I I see where I'm not right. When are you going to make me right? They hunger and thirst. They long to see God's justice done. The merciful, those who show mercy. 
We get that. They're, they're merciful towards other people. They're always extending mercy, extending grace. We understand that. And this is where things get a little challenging with peacemakers and pure in heart because we, we tend to not think of any, any possible negative thing that could possibly come from that. And we're going to see all of these. But the pure in heart, it doesn't necessarily mean just those whose hearts are perfectly pure and clean in every way, because again, that would mean no one. But it's, think of it this way. There's a purity in their hearts that they're longing for. And if, if they look around at anywhere in life, are they ever going to find it? No, these are the perfectionists. These are the nitpickers. These are the ones that have an idea of pureness in their heart that they're longing for, but they, they never see it. And they can tell you exactly where everything doesn't measure, measure up. And most often, they're the harshest critic on themselves. All they look at is their own imperfections. Everywhere that they fail, everywhere that their faults are, everywhere that doesn't measure up. That's who he's addressing. And then there's the peacemakers. You don't know who is a good picture of a, a peacemaker? It's not peacekeeping. Peacekeeping and peacemaking are two different things. Usually people who try to keep the peace try to just sweep everything under the rug and we don't actually deal with anything. We just kind of not address it. That's, not, that's really not keeping the peace, but it's certainly not making it. A peacemaker would be a police officer called in during the middle of a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife. Which one of them looks at him favorably? Neither, right? Because he's not on my side, so clearly he's against me. Well, he's not on either side. He's trying to bring reconciliation and bring them together. That's what a peacemaker does. They, they step into a conflict and try to reconcile two sides that are at odds. That's what making peace is. And usually, at least at the beginning of it, neither one are a fan of the peacemaker at all. And then obviously when others uh, are persecuted for righteousness sake, we understand that. Those that are being persecuted for, their, for following Jesus. And even though it wouldn't have been those that Jesus was speaking to at the moment, when Matthew wrote this, which you know was maybe 20, 30 years after Jesus had, had died and risen, you better believe the, the Christians reading this understood exactly what he was talking about. So why are each of these blessed? And, you know, and just, I just need to mention this. I, I've had several conversations with people over the last few weeks just prepping for this and studying through it and talking through it. And, and the peace, the, the poor in spirit, um, why are they blessed? Well, they're, they're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is for them when nobody would think it was, right? When you ask the first century Jew who is going to inherit the kingdom, well, those who are righteous, those who are worthy of it, those who are living a good enough life for Yahweh to finally send the Messiah and set us free. They would think of the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all of these religious groups, they would have thought, but he says, no, it's for those of you who have no claim to anything spiritually as well. And, you know, we try to make it, well, it means you're humble. It means you're, you're reserved before the Lord. And we try to make it a positive. It's not a positive. But I was talking to someone about it. And they'd never heard a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. They'd never read any books about it, never read any commentaries about it. All they knew was Matthew. And I said, okay, so what's your take on it? He said, well, you know, the poor in spirit are those that really don't have anything going for them spiritually, but the kingdom is for them too. 
And I stopped. I said, wait a minute. You've never, we've never talked about this before? No. You've never heard any teaching on that? No. Never heard a sermon? No. Never listened to a podcast? No. Never read a book on it? No. So you just read Matthew and you understood that being poor in spirit wasn't a good thing. Well, yeah, because poor, being poor means you don't have anything. And that just stopped me in my tracks. I said, wow. Because all my life I've heard people try to say how being poor in spirit is a good thing and I need to be that. But it's not. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? They're not blessed because they're poor in spirit. He says, blessed are they because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom is for them too. See how all of these things are really, he's in the kingdom, because remember, this is an announcement of the good news of the kingdom. In the kingdom, because the kingdom is theirs, things are going to be different for them. It's not that they're blessed for their situation. They're blessed because their situation is about to be changed in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, not because mourning is better than not mourning. No, he says those who mourn are blessed because in the kingdom they'll be comforted. That's good news. I mean, if you go up to somebody, again, the parents following their child's casket out of the, the funeral home, and you say, your life really is blessed. You just don't know it. How well do you think that's going to be received? That is, yeah, that's the wrong thing to say, okay? When you're dealing with people mourning, there's no right thing to say, but there are a lot of wrong things to say, right? But if you went to them and said, you know what? The Lord is blessing you, and in him, you'll be comforted. That's a whole different scenario. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can imagine him with the crowds all around him on this mountain. And he's just probably looking out because Jesus did that. He always drew attention to specific realities in, in real life that they knew. And you can just see Jesus looking out at the crowd and seeing these people who, who are probably towards the back, who don't feel like they have any business being in, under a rabbi's teaching. And he says, all of you that are poor spiritually, you're blessed. Good news for you. The kingdom is for you too. Those of you who are mourning and you've got a terrible situation right now, you are blessed because in the kingdom, you're going to be comforted. Those of you who are meek, those of you who would never reach out and grab anything, even if it's yours, somebody who doesn't take anything, what do they end up having? Nothing, because they haven't reached out and grabbed it. And that's, that thought process still goes on today. Well, if you want it, you better go get it. But what does Jesus say? Those who are so timid that they would never be assertive enough to grab anything for themselves, you're blessed. Good news for you. You're going to inherit the whole earth. It's beautiful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because in the kingdom, you're going to start seeing things made right. Both in your own heart and in the world. The problems, the injustice, the the lack of righteousness in the world is never going to be fixed. But in the kingdom, those who long for it will be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful. Why do they need it? Have you ever met somebody that just always extends mercy to everybody else? Every time they're wronged, they're merciful towards somebody else. What, what happens to those people? They get trampled on. Absolutely. If you give mercy to everybody you encounter, you are going to be the doormat of the world. And we know that from experience. But what does Jesus say? He says, those of you that give mercy to everybody and you're always taken advantage of because it, I got good news for you in the kingdom. You're going to receive mercy, not be taken advantage of. Blessed are the pure in heart. You're longing for something perfect that you're never finding because it's not there. I've got good news for you. You're going to see God. The perfect you've always longed for, the good you can't seem to find, you'll have it in the kingdom. The peacemakers, those who are always trying to bring others together, they're blessed. Because they'll be called sons of God. In other words, God is a God of reconciliation. And when we step into conflict trying to bring two sides together in peace, we're bearing the family resemblance. And he says, yeah, can't you see how much they look like me? They're doing exactly what he does. No wonder they're called sons of God. And those who are persecuted for following Jesus, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When people look at the the disciples as they flee and suffer as Jesus is being crucified, nobody's thinking, oh yeah, he must have been the Messiah and they're, they're in his kingdom. But that was exactly the case. None of these things tend to end in, in good results for people in normal life. But Jesus says in the kingdom, it's all different. So how do we apply this? Right? And you notice how the good news of the kingdom is crucial to all of these? There's no good news for those people apart from the kingdom. But in the kingdom, everything is different. That, that's crucial. The kingdom has to come to bear on their life. But how do we apply this if it's not a to-be list? Because usually you hear all of these things and they explain each one of them and then how you need to become that. Well, what do we do with it if it's not that? What do we do if the gist of it is Hey, I got great news. The kingdom is for everybody. And you're blessed in the kingdom. What do we do with that? Here's what we do with it. Receive the blessedness of the kingdom in Jesus. That's where we start. You start with it yourself and know that blessedness, well-offness, having the good lifeness is in the kingdom with Jesus and the blessedness of the kingdom transcends all circumstances and all conditions of life. In the kingdom, in reality, your circumstances become entirely irrelevant to your blessedness because you're blessed in the kingdom with the king and the king is always with you. He said, I'm with you always and he'll never leave us. That's the true condition of blessedness is being in the kingdom. So stop thinking if this or that circumstance changed, things would be better in my life. That's not true. You can change all the circumstances you want. And I mean, I'll give you that. Some circumstances are more favorable than others. But the reality is it's the heart change. 
And if you understand that you're in the kingdom and that all of the Father's resources are available to you, the, the facts of the matter for this life, are they, they matter so much less. Unbelievably less. Because your blessedness is in him. And your circumstances are irrelevant to being blessed. You could be completely rich. You could be a millionaire and miserable. You could be a millionaire and love Jesus and have the most wonderful disposition and generous heart. You could be in abject poverty and still have a problem with money because you idolize it because you don't have it and you just think if I could get some, it would all be better. Or you could be dirt poor and just be as satisfied as could be in your walk with Jesus. But you see how having money or not having money, you can still have money as an idol or you can still be at peace with Jesus. So what does the money have to do with it? Nothing. It's your heart. And whether you're actually living in the kingdom or not. That's true also of politics. Yes, we're going to go there. We need to go there because it doesn't matter who's in office. Your blessedness in the kingdom doesn't have anything to do with which country you live in, what country you're a citizen of, what nationality you are, what political party's in charge, which political party has a majority on the Supreme Court. None of it matters. If you're in the kingdom, you are blessed. If you are not in the kingdom, you're not blessed. I don't care how well off your life looks, you are not well off if you're not in the kingdom. And I will tell you, the most grieved I have ever been in in my life concerning the church is when Donald Trump was elected president. Hear me. Nothing to do with whether I thought he would be a good president or not because he just got elected. Nobody knew how that was going to turn out. But to see the relief and the voiced relief of so many Christians that thought, it's all over now. It's going to be better. Or vice versa. When Trump didn't get reelected, there were just as many Christians of the other mindset saying, finally, that immoral man is out of office. It grieved me to no end because you can never put the right person in the White House to fix the world. Ever. We need to stop viewing our blessedness and the blessedness of our life and the state of well-being of the church as having anything to do with what political power is running things. Means nothing. Jesus never tried to advocate overthrowing Caesar. Paul never said, pray that we get a new emperor. He said, pray for him. Period. And so we do. But it has nothing to do with whether we or the church is blessed or not. The only crucial condition, the only relevant circumstance is the presence or absence of the kingdom of God in your life. That's all that matters.
Secondly, proclaim the blessedness of the kingdom to everyone. Everyone. There's another good movie clip I should have got. Oh. Yeah, maybe I'll find that for next week. But we never should look at anybody and think the kingdom isn't for them. Because that kind of person doesn't exist on this planet. Some of the people you might, and you might look at somebody and say, well, they were a child molester. You know they killed somebody? You know they killed Christians? Okay. Jesus can forgive them. You know that? Nobody's excluded from the kingdom. The kingdom is for everybody. That's the good news of the kingdom. We think of people that that would never make it, but the kingdom is for them too. That doesn't mean they're automatically in it. We still have to come to Jesus and repent and follow him and be made new in his image. But that door is open for everybody. And sometimes we look at people, I've got a friend who, who, man, this guy has just the greatest heart. He loves Jesus. He loves people. Um, it, it's amazing. But the first time I talked to him, he, he was in a biker gang and into drug smuggling and, and all these things. And he was actually wanting to get close to me to find out who I was because I was impacting his son for Jesus. He's like, who is this goofy white guy moving into my son, teaching him this? He's a you know, Hispanic guy. Love him to death. But at first, he wasn't a big fan of me or Jesus. And, uh, and you just kind of think, you know, well, yeah, he's probably too, he doesn't care, probably has a hard heart, this or that, you know. We see certainly, let's be honest, we judge people by appearances. We look at certain people and we think, well, there's no point in really sharing the gospel with them. The kingdom's for them too. We can't make that, that call. We share the kingdom with everybody. Remember the list I read. Anyone and everyone can and will be blessed when Jesus comes to bear on their life. And we can never, ever forget that. In fact, it's most often received by the least likely and the most needy. That's the way Jesus does it. And that's what confirms this take on the Beatitudes. In Isaiah 61, which Jesus referenced and several other of the gospels do various times, it says he came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the broken, to comfort the mourning, all of the outcast, the downtrodden, the marginalized of society, Jesus went especially to them. When John John, the baptizer, was expecting Jesus to be like the Messiah and come with judgment and fire and all this stuff. And, and John's in prison and he's hearing all these things that Jesus is doing. And he sends his people to say, hey, are you really the one that was to come? I mean, John, who saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on Jesus, confirmed that's the guy. He's questioning, are you really the guy? And Jesus says, go tell him the lame are walking. The lepers are healed. The blind see. All the outcasts, all the pushed asides, all the have-nots, all the you're never anything in life, they're experiencing the touch and the power of the kingdom. One of my favorites, 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul describes this group of Corinthian believers. 
you know, and we, we still, we still have this thing that we think the, the rich and the powerful and the beautiful, the good looking people of the world are the ones that Jesus is really after and that we should be after. But Paul looks at this group of Christians and he says, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The kingdom is for everybody. The blessedness of the kingdom is for everybody. And we need to be proclaiming it to everybody. And yes, that means you. That doesn't mean me up here doing this. That means every one of you who has received the blessedness of the kingdom in Jesus. When you leave, you need to go find somebody else and proclaim the blessedness, the good news of the kingdom and everything that comes with it to them. Nobody's off the hook. We all need to do it. John did it. He said, repent, the the kingdom is here. Jesus went and did it. He sent the 12 to do it. He sends the disciples to do it. And we should also go do it. So that's it. Receive the good news of the kingdom and its blessings. And then go and proclaim to everybody you meet, hey, I've got some great news. The kingdom is for you. And in Jesus, I don't care what your life looks like now, you will be blessed in him. That's the good news of the kingdom. It's for everybody. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.